And we are going to begin um, a, a short Christmas series from Revelation chapter 12 this morning. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 12, and then um, if you can put a marker in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 4, towards the end of the Old Testament. No one likes war, especially at Christmas time. In fact, uh, the unnaturalness of war during Christmas time is documented, at least in part, in the Christmas truce of 1914 during World War I. Has anyone heard of the Christmas truce in World War I? Well, I want to share with you a uh, uh, part of an article from uh, Times Magazine uh, online article um, concerning this Christmas truce of 1914. The article says this, On a crisp, clear morning, 100 years ago, thousands of British, Belgian, and French soldiers put down their rifles stepped out of their trenches and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. In the hundred years since, the event has been seen as a kind of miracle, a rare moment of peace just a few months into a war that would eventually claim over 15 million lives. But what actually happened on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914? And did they really play soccer on the battlefield? Well, Pope Benedict XV, who took office that September, had originally called for a Christmas truce, an idea that was officially rejected. Yet it seems the sheer misery of daily life in the cold, wet, dull trenches was enough to motivate troops to initiate the truce on their own which means that it's hard to pin down exactly what happened. A huge range of differing oral accounts, diary entries, and letters home from those who took part make it virtually impossible to speak of a typical Christmas truce as it took place across the Western Front. To this day, historians continue to disagree over the specifics. No one knows where it began or how it spread or if by some curious festive magic it broke out simultaneously across the trenches. Nevertheless, some two-thirds of troops, about 100,000 people, are believed to have participated in the legendary truce. Most accounts suggest the, truth, the truce began with carol singing, from the trenches on Christmas Eve. It was, quote, a beautiful moonlit night, frost on the ground, white almost everywhere, as Private Albert Morin of the 2nd Queen's Regiment recalled. In a document later rounded up by the New York Times, Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described it in even greater detail. He said, quote, First, the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours. Until when we started up, O Come All Ye Faithful, the Germans immediately joined in singing the same hymn to the Latin words, and I'm not going to say this correctly, 
uh, Adeste Fidelis. And I thought, well, this is really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war, end of quote. The next morning, in some places, German soldiers emerged from their trenches calling out Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out warily to greet greet them. In others, Germans held up signs reading, You know shoot, we know shoot. (laughs) Over the course of the day, troops exchanged gifts of cigarettes, food, buttons, and hats. The Christmas truce also allowed both sides to finally bury their dead comrades whose bodies had lain for weeks on no man's land, the ground between opposing trenches. The phenomenon took different forms across the Western Front. One account mentions a British soldier having his hair cut by his pre-war German barber. Another talks of a pig roast. Several mention impromptu kickabouts with makeshift soccer balls, although contrary to popular legend, it seems unlikely that there were any organized matches. The truce was widespread, but not universal. Evidence suggests that in many places, firing continued. And in at least two, a truce was attempted, but soldiers attempting to fraternize were shot by opposing forces. And of course, it was only ever a truce, not peace. Hostilities returned in some places, later that day, and in others, not until after New Year's Day. I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. One veteran from the 5th Battalion, the Black Watch, Alfred Anderson, later recalled to the Observer, it was a short peace in a terrible war, end of quote. As the Great War resumed, it wreaked such destruction and devastation that soldiers became hardened to the brutality of the war. While there were occasional moments of peace throughout the rest of World War I, they never again came on the scale of the Christmas truce of 1914. Interesting article, huh? The horrors of war. However, these types of war, which involve national interests, they really pair in comparison to the great cosmic war that we read of in the book of Revelation. The battle is great, the foe is great, but Jesus is greater still. Amen? And for the next few weeks, we're going to look at this great war as described in a very key chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. In fact, Uh, One individual says this regarding Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is one of the most important and challenging chapters for the student of Revelation. It portrays great theological truths in a dramatic form that has led to a variety of interpretations. And while we're not seeking this morning or in this series to unpack all the various interpretations of chapter 12 or to, be, to settle the debate of different perspectives or opinions, 
We're going to see how chapter 12 of Revelation is meant to impact our lives. You may be thinking, why why are we looking at Revelation 12 at Christmas? In fact, um, when I was thinking through this, and I kind of felt led by the Holy Spirit to, to direct our attention here, I kind of asked myself the same thing. Why are we looking at this during Christmas? But I feel like this chapter really has everything to do with Christmas. In fact, it helps define for us what Christmas is all about. The coming of Christ to defeat sin, defeat death, defeat Satan, and to redeem and protect His people to the very end. That is the totality of the Christmas story. So it's no wonder when we think about Christmas why the angels could proclaim in Luke 2 verse 14 a glory to God in the highest and on peace or glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. While we're not going to look at Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke chapter 2 which are uh, traditional Christmas passages of the Christmas story, we are going to see the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which is proclaimed in cosmic detail in this chapter. So the key truth that that we are going to look at in this kind of mini-series, this mini-Christmas series, is very simple, yet very profound. Christ's victory is the dragon's defeat. If you're a believer here this morning, this is your hope. Christ's victory is the dragon's defeat. And this morning, and I don't know if we are, uh, are going to get through all of this this morning, but the goal is to focus our attention on verses 1 to 6, And look at three key observations in John's vision regarding these three characters, the woman, the dragon, and the child. And these things point us to the reality of Christ's victory, which is also our victory. So let's pray and and we will uh, begin and we'll get through as much of this as we can this morning. Let's, Let's begin in prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day of worship. Lord, it's rainy outside, kind of gloomy outside. But Lord, that doesn't change the truth of what you have done for us, of what you are doing in this world. It doesn't change the the end of the story, or the middle, or the beginning. And Lord, as we have a lot going on today with nativity practice and looking to the weekend, uh, this coming weekend with our uh, live nativity showings, Lord, God, we ask that you would bless those. But Lord, as we are gathered together to study your word, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Father, that the Holy Spirit would be active, would open our hearts, understanding would further ground the gospel into our hearts that it really is, Lord, all about Jesus. 
God, I pray that you would be at work. If there's one today that does not know you as their Savior, I pray today would be the day that they look to Jesus as the King and Rescuer. In Jesus' name, amen. When we read, I just want to read uh, uh, verses 1 and 2 here as we look at this first point. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Wow, what a vision. When I was uh, teaching um, on, on understanding and communicating apocalyptic literature um, with Training Leaders Org, uh, International, which we, ju- we just prayed for this morning, one of the things that we really tried to emphasize was stopping to just let the awe and the description of the passage settle in our minds. Because the symbolism here is meant to evoke emotion in in its listeners. And here you see both glory and you see also great somberness. To let the images, the pictures, the symbols create all within us. The first observation that we're going to make in John's vision here, and really this vision, it goes from chapter 12 to chapter 14. We're just looking at as much of 12 as we can over the next couple weeks. But we see, number one, that the child, the Messiah, Jesus, has come through much travail. That's the word picture we get here, isn't it? That's the imagery that we get. The child has come through much travail. In verse 1, we see the great glory of the woman that's portrayed In fact, it says, a great sign appeared in heaven. This woman that John sees is a great sign. You contrast that with verse 3, the the, the fierceness of the dragon. It simply says, a sign. So the greater sign here, the greater aspect of John's vision that he sees is this woman. That's even more magnificent than this scary, mean-looking dragon. A great sign appears, and it's a majestic sign. In fact, when we look and read about signs, especially in, in Revelation, a sign is evidence of symbolism that's meant to convey truth. So while John may actually be seeing this this imagery, it's it's simply a symbol that John is seeking to describe, and that symbol is meant to convey truth. In fact, as one person says, signs are symbols or signposts that depict heavenly truths and are meant to challenge the readers to faith. 
That's the purpose of signs and revelation. We're not doing a series on revelation uh, right now, but we are not to see the book of Revelation as a bunch of timelines. That's a wrong way to look at Revelation. Revelation is meant to convey truth to readers here and now to persevere in the faith. And we see here a majestic sign. A woman is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. We see here the majesty of this woman in her appearance. We all like to look nice, right? But here we see a woman that is clothed with the sun, the brightest star in the heavens, and under her feet is the moon. And there's these 12 stars around her head. You may say, well, Pastor Adam, what in the world is, is going on here? Well, our minds are brought back when we read this. The, the book of Revelation quotes or alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And here we see a reference going back to Genesis 37. You don't have to turn there. Verses 9 and 10 are on the screen. Uh, Joseph has a dream. And Joseph says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And you remember that Joseph went into Egypt as a slave, and, and he, he rose to, to be the second in command in Egypt and to bring his family in Egypt to preserve his people, his family, in the midst of the famine. So we see this similar description of this woman in the details of the sun and the moon and the, the stars. That this woman is meant to rule. And as we're going to see later in the text, specifically, the child is the ruler and his people, we read in other places in Scripture, including the book of Revelation, will rule with this child. God's people will rule and reign with their Messiah King. But as is typical with Revelation, there's many, many allusions to multiple themes and texts in the Old Testament. For instance, Solomon, in alluding to his bride in the, in the book of Song of Solomon, he describes the beauty of his bride in very similar detail to what we see here. He says, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, Beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. 
Here you see the beauty of King Solomon's bride. Are you getting the significance of this woman? Symbolizing the very people of God from whom the Messiah would come. We see a majestic, hopeful sign here. Now, if you want to read uh, about the original audience that is receiving Revelation, you read chapters 2 and 3. And they're reading this, and this would be a great encouragement because these weary, battered Christians would feel anything but any, would feel like anything other than an exalted, ruling bride, an exalted, ruling woman. They were being beaten and battered and going through difficulty. Verse 2 would resonate much more with John's audience. We see in verse 2 the woman's appearance. It says, She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. How many of you women can identify with this? Yeah. Everyone who's given birth. How many of you uh, uh, chose not to, to have an epidural or pain medication when you delivered? Wow, some, a lot of brave women here. You know about the pains of childbirth. Well, as we look at the travail of this woman, we see the description here. She was pregnant. Now, women, as you are pregnant, your whole pregnancy, there is a feeling of expectation and hope, right? Right? I am pregnant. I'll, I'll never forget the first time that Rachel and I um, found out that, 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 uh, that she was pregnant. Whenever couples say we're pregnant, I get it. It just sounds weird to my ears. Uh, but when we found out that we were expecting, I'll never forget it because it was very surreal. The first one with Timothy and and uh, we were walking around. Uh, like It's like, wow, business as usual Yet we have this life-changing news. And the whole time was a time of expectation and hope. And wasn't that the case with Jesus the Messiah? This woman was pregnant. That's exciting news. But the description here suddenly turns from excitement to very seriousness. She's pregnant, but was crying out in birth pains. I'll never forget, I don't, I don't know if it was with Timothy or with Isaac, um, when we were in the hospital, I was so glad that, you know, I was just the one on the side of the bed to offer encouragement because there was a poor lady that was in the hall, like down the, a room or two from us, and she is like literally like screaming and yelling and, and uh, I don't think Rachel was, was uh, she was, you know, we, all of our children, we had, uh, what do you call them? What? We were, in, uh, she was induced. Um, so it was always like a long stay, like when's the medicine going to kick in? And um, so anyway, I was like, I hope Rachel's not getting too intimidated by hearing this poor lady. But that's what I think of when I read of this. 
crying out in birth pains. This word birth pains, it's the same word Paul uses in Galatians 4.19 when Paul says, I am in the anguish of childbirth when he was worried about the Galatian church that they were about to leave the gospel to go back to the law. Anguish of childbirth. This woman is in pain. There is difficulty and conflict during this expectation and hope of the Messiah to come. And then it says at the end of of verse uh, 2, great birth pains and the agony of giving birth. The word agony there is used of being tormented or punished. And what this is describing here is the suffering of the people of God as they await their coming Messiah. The setting here is very clear. The setting of a woman in the setting of pregnancy. It's Genesis 3.15. And we're going to continue to see that as we go through chapter 12. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a conflict going on. And we read through the Old Testament with with the the, the history of God's people. And there would be those who were followers of God and those who were the seed of the serpent and the seed of the serpent or the dragon was inflicting pain and agony on God's seed as Satan is trying to stamp out the birth of this child. All the way back to Cain and Abel, where you have Cain murdering Abel. So you have the suffering of God's people throughout redemptive history as we read the Scriptures. As there was this expectant hope. But then even more specifically, we read of the pain of God's people as they are taken into captivity. If you have a finger in in Micah chapter 4, look at this imagery. In Micah, Micah is trying to give hope to the people of Israel as they are experiencing God's judgment in captivity. And in verse 9, Micah says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. Doesn't that describe what we read in Revelation 12 too? For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So even in that pain, there's hope. If we jump over to chapter 5, 
we read in verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Talking about against Jerusalem. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And here's that prophecy we are so familiar with at Christmas. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Here's the birth. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Here we see God's people, the woman, in labor. Both the battle of the serpent and in God's judgment that they've turned against Him. But the one who the woman is to deliver will be the king and will provide deliverance. That's why as we think of this imagery of pregnancy that fills the entire Bible from Genesis 3.15 on, we see expectant waiting. We think of Jesus being born and you remember Joseph and Mary take Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And in Luke chapter 2, the old man Simeon sees the child and says, now I can die in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And then we read that in the same occasion, the prophetess Anna in Luke 2 verse 38 sees Jesus. And she spoke of Him, the text says, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the hope of the child. So as we look at this woman and, and the, first Im, the first picture of imagery of this woman that depicts the people of God, what application can we gather from this? First of all, in our lives, there must be grateful realization. Grateful realization that Christ has come. We sang the song, Jesus Messiah. Name above all names. He has come. We, as Christians today, have the travail may be great still because we are still, as Revelation shows, in a great battle. But Christ has come. And this also gives us a somber reminder. The picture of birth pains and agony. That while Christ, as we will see, has has. has seized victory and has achieved victory, there is still birth pains and agony as we await Christ's second coming. 
And Christ has not called us on this side of eternity to just coast through life and just to avoid all conflict and just to have a merry go lucky life. No, God's people will suffer tribulation. So we see observation number one, the child has come through much travail. This morning we're just going to um, start looking at observation number two. Observation number two has to do with this second sign that the dragon sought to devour the child. The child gives birth through much travail. And number two, the dragon seeks to devour the child. And in verse three, we see the greatness of the dragon. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, on his heads seven diadems. This would be a pretty scary dream. This would be a pretty scary picture. It wasn't, as verse 1 says, a great sign, but it was indeed another sign. And we see the greatness of the dragon described as being a fierce red dragon. What is the dragon's work here as described as being this red dragon? His work is the murder of the people of God. In fact, the only other occurrence of this specific term red in the New Testament is Revelation 6-4 when it depicts a red, uh, a red horse with a rider on it that took peace from the earth so people should slay one another. It's murder, violence, wickedness. In Revelation 17... Verses 3 to 6, there's, there's, while it doesn't use the word red, it uses the word scarlet, that there's a scarlet beast. And on the beast, there's a harlot clothed in purple and scarlet. And this harlot, this woman, was drunk with the blood of the saints. So when we read about a red dragon, have no doubt about it that this red dragon that's waiting at the feet of the woman to try to devour the Messiah is already blood, uh, uh, is already stained with the blood of the people of God that have come before the Messiah. He is out for murder. The very fact that he's pictured as a dragon shows his strength. In fact, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh is often referred to as a dragon. In Isaiah 27, verse 1, it says, In that day the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is the sea, that is in the sea. Psalm 74, verse 14, the psalmist is remembering the works of God in picturesque language. He says, you crushed the heads of Leviathan 
you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You see, even a mighty beast like Leviathan, a mighty dragon, is no match for God. But he no doubt stood as a threat to the woman and to the child. And then we see further his description. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. What this symbolism is pointing to is the might and the authoritative rule of the dragon. He has seven heads and, and ten horns. It's talking about kings and kingdoms. Seven crowns. The number in, in Revelation, the number seven and throughout the Bible is the number of completeness. Ten as well is a, is a whole complete number. There is complete rule that this dragon seems to have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, how is Satan described as the God of this world? And he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. And in Ephesians 2, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's working among the children of disobedience. Folks, as Christians, we ought not seek after the culture of this world because it is under the dominion of Satan. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And Satan many times can get through backdoor avenues to have us as Christians even place our, whole, our hope in cultural philosophies and mindsets and people that somehow they are going to bring rescue when the book of Revelation in just this single chapter shows us that it is only Christ that brings rescue. You see, he is a counterfeit to true authority. In fact, the Lamb, Jesus, in Revelation 5-6 is described with also seven horns, seven eyes, that he is the one in complete rule. He is the one that sees all things. In Revelation 19.12, it talks about Jesus has many diadems or crowns on his head. And as you keep reading through Revelation, you read Revelation 13, you see that Satan is the great counterfeit to God. But he is just that, a counterfeit. In verse 4, you see the fierceness of this dragon. He's devouring it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. Many individuals uh, believe that this is a reference to, um, to when Satan deceived, a third, um, deceived angels and they say a third of the angels uh, based on this passage. And that could be the case. There's nothing dogmatic to say that this is referring to when this happened with Satan, or with Satan and the, the fallen angels, I personally would say that this is, uh, I believe this is talking about the devouring of God's people. 
Uh, based on Daniel 8.10, where we have a similar description, Antiochus Epiphanes being referred to as a horn that grew, and it says it grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. We're talking here about devouring. That this great dragon has already devoured throughout redemptive history many of God's people and He wants to do the same to the Messiah. He's devoured God's people and now He's waiting to devour the child. The end of verse 4, it says, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour or consume her. Now again, going back to many of your own experiences with giving birth, there's no more vulnerable time for a woman than when she's laying there having to push out a baby. I mean, all of, all of her energy and her strength is going to deliver this child that if somebody wanted to do the woman harm or the child, they could easily do so, right? You have the picture of, of a woman that's, that's uh, laying on her back or you could say uh, standing um, based on what cultures do or midwives. Let's not get into all that. And then you have the imagery of the dragon on high alert standing ready to devour. What a picture of vulnerability and danger. The setting, once again, takes us back to Genesis 3.15. Where there's enmity, there's this battle, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Who will overcome? And we see this being played out as we read through the Old Testament. For instance, we think of Pharaoh trying to stamp out God's people to avoid the Messiah coming in very familiar picturesque um, setting. Exodus 1.16 says, Pharaoh tells the midwives, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, he shall live. Here you see through Pharaoh's command the dragon awaiting to slaughter any child that these Hebrew women may give birth to. You then read in the New Testament and you see another one that is used by the dragon with Herod in the Christmas story. Matthew 2.16 says, Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. You see the dragon seeking to devour. 
And folks, that takes us all the way to the cross where Satan in his conceit thinks that by nailing the Son who has now come into this world to the cross, that somehow he can thwart still God's plan. The final attempt of the dragon was the cross. So folks, what can we take as application here from this look at the dragon? What we can take is what 1 John 4, 4 says. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Folks, Satan is the prince of the power of the air He's the God of this world. And Satan is still at work, as we'll read later in Revelation 12, seeking to devour the people of God. But he is greater still. Jesus says, do not fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can destroy the soul. No matter what Satan may do to our bodies, he cannot take away the true hope that we have as God's people. And as the audience in Revelation is reading the words of this vision, their souls are being encouraged that Jesus has come. The dragon has done a lot But he couldn't do, as we'll see next week, he couldn't do a thing to the child. And therefore, we as God's people are safe. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Lord, that even the fury and the intimidation and fierceness of the dragon is but a pointer to Your greatness and Your glory. The magnificence of who You are and of how You, God, You have conquered. Lord, I pray that we would take courage this morning Father, no matter what is going on around us, no matter what is going on within us, no matter what is going on in our home, in our circumstances, Lord, You have won the victory through Jesus. 